And uh, thank you again for coming tonight. As I think about the children being dismissed, I'm also dismissing uh, Brent and Danielle. And um, I do that. I'm laughing because when I think about um, through the years, uh, years ago, I met this girl named Misha. And I uh, thought, I was like, man, that's an odd name. Like, where is she, Russian or something like that? And, um, and I met her in the bookstore at Bobgins University. I was a senior. She was a sophomore. I didn't know who she was. I'd never seen this girl before. I'd kind of grown up in that area. And so, and I'd grown up on campus and stuff too. Uh, my parents weren't faculty, but, um, but we just kind of grew up kind of going, th- going through to Christian school. My grandparents paid our way. We were really kind. They were really kind to us in doing that. But as, as I was in a bookstore, I see this girl. I'm like, man, that girl's pretty. And, um, and uh, Misha, I saw this name tag. I'm like, oh, man, that's interesting. Then I asked a friend of mine, do you know this girl? And uh, he goes, yeah, I know this girl. He said, I used to date her. And I said, you did? I was shocked. I mean, I just didn't, I didn't know this guy real well. But I said, that, you dated her? Yeah, she broke up with me. That's what he said. And I said, oh, I said, do you still like her? He says, well, yeah. And I said, okay, I'm just curious. I, I mean, I don't ask her out. I just didn't know who this girl was. And, and, we, and we'd always talk about this girl, this mystery girl. And it was funny because it was Aaron Coffey and myself, who was my friend, and uh, he would talk about this girl named Misha, and I would talk about this girl named Misha. We'd never run across her because she was a nursing major, and so she was always in the, like, the nursing buildings, so we never kind of ran across from her. Anyway, at one point in time, I thought, you know, I want to ask, ask someone out that, um, that I don't really know, and that's, that's unusual. I usually know the person if I would have gone out with them of some sort, so I, I um, kind of call her up on a whim. A friend of mine from Hawaii who knew her and was on her hall said, Jeremy, I think if you were to call her up and ask her, she would say yes. So anyway, I called her up and, um, and talked to her for a while and told her about this thing, but I, I don't think I ever invited her to, to like, the, the outing thing that I was going to be doing. Like, so I told her all about it, but never said, never invited. Then at the end, I got the phone, I thought, I don't even know if she said yes. What, what, I, I, and it was really funny. I guess I just kind of felt comfortable talking to her. The next day, we had a, went to a soccer game together and hung out a little bit, and, um, and then come to find out... Um, I, over Christmas time, I thought, I'm going to call this girl up. Uh, she thinks she's from Michigan. I can't remember how I got her number, but basically I called her up and, and I said, is Misha there? Brent's on the phone. And, um, and Brent's like, uh, you know, there is no Misha at this address. <laughs> and so, and because Misha didn't go by Misha at home, she always went by Melissa. So no one knew her by that. And so it's kind of a funny thing. All the friends and everyone else uh, call her that. So, but family was always called her Melissa or, or, or a derogatory name from the brothers. And um, so anyway, I'm talking to the family. Well, anyway, as I'm talking to her over Christmas, it's so interesting because she says, uh, she said, my brother's dating this girl from Goldsboro, North Carolina. That's her friend. I said, really? I know, I know somebody from Goldsboro, North Carolina, because we had friends growing up at uh, my home church, and they had moved to Goldsboro. And I, th- I thought, that's, just, that's, that's kind of a coincidence. And yeah, he met her at college. He actually dated the older sister first and ended up marrying the younger, you know. And, and um, so as I began to talk to her, I said, well, what's their name? He said, Cowan. And I said, Cowan, no way. Are you talking about Deanne and Danielle? Yes. I'm like, you're crazy. I'm like, I used to hang out with these guys all the time in high school. They eventually moved away uh, in high school. And so I haven't seen them for years. And so they met at Maranatha. And, um, and so as I think about all this, it's, it, you come full circle. And so my wife has got two brothers. One is Brent, who's the older. Then there's my wife. And then there's a younger brother named Bruce who lives in kind of the Janesville, um, Madison area of Wisconsin. And uh, he and his wife. So it's, so it's just interesting. So we come here. Everyone's excited. They're like, oh, 
you know, get to see everybody, Bryce and, and, and Brooke and Blair, and they're always excited about uh, seeing them and, and just family. So it's kind of neat as they're ended up here. And uh, I pray for you even more so now, too, knowing that you got Brent here in your congregation. That's a big deal. And uh, so anyway, just thankful for them, though, and uh, thankful to be back here uh, just through the years, just knowing Pastor Pete and his wife and just their family and just what God's doing in their own hearts and their own lives. Uh, it's just exciting. And then crazy years ago, uh, Pastor Nate and um, just kind of meeting him at the same place where Pastor Pete was, and he was in high school at the time, and just kind of seeing how God is working in people. And the guy coming that you guys have coming, is, I'm super excited for as well. And um, so we've just known him for a long time, the Suarez guy. So anyway, take your Bible and go with me to the book of Luke, Luke 14. In Luke 14, as we've read this passage, again, a, a, a serious passage from Jesus. I, my prayer is that as I go through this series, that what will happen to you is you'll get, so, you'll get such an understanding of it, and because we spent extra time in it, my prayer would be that you know by the end of the week, as you get cut, you'll bleed Luke 14. It just becomes a part of you. It just, you, you know what this passage is saying. You know what Jesus is calling people to, and so I want to make it very clear as I seek to unfold this. As we looked at this already, we've realized this as Jesus is speaking to great crowds of people, he's, he's actually preaching a gospel message, but the gospel message is not just for lost people. It's for believers as well. So anybody hearing this message would be challenged by this, and we saw even this morning he's calling people to come to him what does it mean to come to Christ? It means to become a true believer, a true follower of Jesus. As you look at this even closer, we realize even the whole word disciple uh, came to mean a true, authentic follower of Jesus. As you begin to see this uh, played out, you have to look at it in its context. What does it mean? Could you imagine again someone saying, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I don't follow Jesus? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. True Christians follow Christ. That is normal for any true Christian. There's a lot of people who call themselves Christians who really are not. I think that's what we'll see more and more in Scripture, Jesus making that even more clear. So as we look at this closely, notice verse 25. I'm going to read this to us and, um, again, kind of give us a whole passage there and pray and begin tonight. It says this in verse 25, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He continues on, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Then he says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, he's not able to, uh, able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall, it be, how shall its saltness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As we looked at this initially, we realized that this great crowd of people, Jesus speaks to them. He's calling people to authentic faith, real repentance, and real faith. 
It's unlike the, the, the prosperity gospel that you hear in our modern day. It's unlike the, the easy believism. Hey, just kind of pray this prayer and you're in. You know, it's not like that. Jesus is laying out the stipulations of what it means to be an authentic follower of Jesus. And honestly, as you begin to look at this, we wonder sometimes, has, has people that have claimed Christ really repented? Has there ever been a time where they really have had this happen to them? And I'm going to make it even more clear tonight as we seek to unfold this passage of Scripture of what is he saying about this. Now, we realize this morning that he's not, he's not telling you to go around hating everybody. Like, go around and hate your father and your mother and your sister and, and everybody you know and, and even your own self. And if you can't do that, you can't be my disciple. But we realize as we looked at this, this is a Hebraism. We saw the passage in Matthew 10, verse 37, that really showed us if you love father or mother more than me, then you are not worthy of me. Really, he's shown you a comparison. He really, we came to the conclusion this morning that a genuine disciple of Jesus is a person who loves Christ supremely. Are you supposed to love people? Yes. Even with a God-like love, but you love him that much more. It's supremely. That's, that's, that means all other, other loves are almost like hatred in comparison to your love for God. And apart from this, again, if a person's unwilling to do that and say, no, no, I, I don't want that. I've had people tell me, no, Jeremy, actually, you know, God is not number one in my life. It's like when I, they were honest with me. The guy says, you know, I, I love my, my family. I love my job. I, I, I love, you know, my, my money. And, um, and he's like number four or five. I said, well, at least you're honest about your idolatry. <laughs> but that is what it is. It is idolatry. So, so what is he saying in all of this? He's, he's calling us this genuine, genuine faith. And the verse tonight, it's found in verse 27. One verse is what we'll look at tonight. But before we look at it, let's pray and ask God's help, okay? Father, I thank you so much for my friends here tonight. I do pray that you would work in their hearts. I pray, Lord, in my own heart, in my own life, Lord, that you would work in me. And God, use, use the word to work through me. God, as I would proclaim the truth of the word. Lord, I realize, again, not everybody in this room is born from God. But I pray that as you are calling them to yourself, that, God, I would not be afraid of calling my friends to Jesus. And I also pray, God, for those who are in Christ. Many in this room claim to know Christ, and, Lord, it's evidence in their own life they have been born again. But I pray, again, that you would just stir them and take them to a deeper level of surrender to you. Thank you, God, for what you're going to do in our hearts and our lives tonight. Lord, use the message to make us more like Christ. And Lord, what an amazing thing it would be that people would actually, genuine disciples, would follow you completely. They would not hold back in their own spiritual life. So God, I pray for all that you're going to do tonight. Bless it in a special way. Use me now. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You know, as I minister in churches, we've been doing this style of ministry since 1998, so it's been a little while since we've been doing this, but I would say this is that some of my best friends are pastors. You can only imagine that. I mean, the people that kind of invite us to the church are the pastors. If I have a person in the congregation that comes to me and says, hey, you should come to our church, I say, we'll talk to your pastor, you know, because it's the, it's the leadership that's going to invite us to come to a church. But as we spend time with pastors, we also realize this, if we can encourage a pastor and their family, guess what we'll do? We'll encourage a whole congregation. We realize how important it is. That's why if a pastor falls or fails in ministry, how serious that is and, and the devastation it, it causes across the whole community of believers um, in that assembly. And so it's a big deal. I always tell people, pray for your pastors. Pray for them. They're people. They need your prayer. And yet as they would communicate the word. But I think of a pastor friend of mine. His name is Adam Alley. Adam is, 
in Coconut Creek, Florida, which is Miami area. And Adam is, got, is this friend I've known since college, and, and, he's, and he's really funny because Adam will say these things that are kind of like a shocker as he speaks. He'll say things sometimes, and he says things that kind of, he always makes me think, you know, and then he kind of explains himself. And at one point, I'm talking to him on the phone. This is a number of years ago, and, I, and as I'm talking to him on the phone, he, he says this. He says, hey, Jeremy, do you know what the problem with Christianity today is? No, Adam, what is it? I mean, he's going to tell me, you know what I mean? So what, what is the problem with Christianity today? And here's what he said. The problem with Christianity today is this. There are too many Christians living for God. I uh, pulled the phone from my <laughs> cheek. I kind of looked at it funny. I said, Adam, I'm sorry. It sounded like you said the problem with Christianity today is that there are too many Christians living for God. And he says, that's exactly what I said. Let me explain myself. And then he said this. He said, God didn't ask you to live for him. He asked you to die for him. And then I realized what he was talking about. He was talking about surrender. He's talking about coming to an end of yourself, really death to self and life in Christ, that you would experience real life as a real follower of Jesus, as a person who really surrenders fully. You could actually say this as we look at this passage tonight, verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So what does he mean by that? Actually, tonight is a, I'm going to kind of lay it out from the beginning. So now it makes it easy. This morning I waited to the very, very end to give you the point of the message, okay? But tonight I'm going to start off with the point, okay? So it'll make it easier. Now, that's what, here's what I'm going to do. After I do that, I'm going to go through explaining this for a while and kind of seeing what is, it, what is this passage of Scripture, what is it Bible teaching us? And then at the end, I'm going to bombard you with like three main things that are like subpoints, okay? But it's going to be at the end. And if, when you write those things down, I mean, your page might catch on fire. Your iPad might kind of smoke a little bit. We'll see, okay? But that, you just got to write it down quickly. I'm going to come to the end and say, boom, boom, boom. Here's what it is, okay? But let me, um, let me, as we look at this tonight, see this closely as we consider this passage of Scripture. What does it mean to bear the cross? Tonight's point is simply this. A genuine disciple of Jesus is a person who surrenders to Christ fully, full surrender, not partial, not kind of, sort of, full surrender. As you consider this tonight, take your Bible and then you can hold that spot there. We will eventually make your way back here, but go to the book of John, John chapter 12, as Jesus speaks and teaches us about this. It's not the only time he has taught this kind of subject, but in John chapter 12, in verse 23, we look at this passage. It's interesting. I'll back you up even to verse 20, but notice this. It says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was, of, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and he asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, and here's what he says. He says, the hour has come. It's, it's almost like, that, hey, there are people that want to see you, Jesus. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then he just decides to speak to them. And it's almost like, it's like, did he even hear what they said? He, but, but he has something to teach them. Here's what he says. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What's that all about? Verse 24, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What is this talking about? I want you to back up to verse 24 closely. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, here we go. you got to think about this one. Okay, ready? Here's what it is. Here's the question. Who is this talking about? Who is Jesus talking about? The corn of wheat falling into the ground and dying. If it doesn't die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Who do you think he's talking about? Somebody say it. Do you think you know? Yeah, actually, it's the perfect answer. It's Jesus. You know, it's like I think about that. I think of every night where if I read a Bible story to my kids, what will happen is Kalea, my four-year-old, will say, Daddy, can you ask me the Jesus question? Because she can't really answer anything else. So I just kind of say, uh, who died on the cross to save you from your sins? Jesus, you know, it's like it's always Jesus. Okay, so yeah, it's Jesus. Here's the answer. So Jesus is speaking of himself. He's getting ready to go to the cross. He's getting ready to to die on the cross, to be buried and to raise from the dead. Now, the truth is his own disciples didn't understand that. Remember, their mentality was the Messiah will come, set up his kingdom, and rule and reign. But the truth is, is yes, he will do that, but not the first time when he came. It's the first time when he'd come, he'd come as a suffering servant. The Bible says to bear the sins of many. I mean, you consider that for a minute. I mean, the truth is, this is a, a major ordeal, but he's teaching them about this. He's getting ready to go to the cross. The hour has come to, there for him to be glorified. That's a big deal. So he says, and you don't have to be a farmer to figure this one out, okay? So what does he say? Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. If the seed is planted but it never dies, nothing happens. It's interesting, out of death, God makes life. When you consider this, here's the seed, and if it doesn't die, it just it's there. It's nothing will happen to it. But the grain of wheat that dies there, and then with the sun and with the soil and with the, the water, and all of a sudden, boom, here comes life springing up out of that. And you can imagine something so small that, that brings forth much fruit or much grain. I mean, you can think about a, a corn, a kernel of corn that brings a whole stalk, and you've got you know all the, the corn that, I mean, that's on that. You Think about a wheat and the head of a wheat with all the different pieces and the, the kernels there, you could say, of the wheat. The truth is, is that's the same thing, a seed. It's like, and then all of a sudden it becomes a, a fruit tree with all of these seeds. It's, it's crazy that out of death springs out life. And so he's saying about himself, he must die. If he doesn't die, it'll remain alone. But if he dies, it will bear much fruit. If Jesus didn't die on the cross, we would be in trouble. There'd be no hope for eternity. And yet the truth is, he's not just speaking of himself. Actually, as you look even further to the next verse, what happens? It says for this, he, he then speaks to the crowd. He speaks to his own disciples who are hearing this. He says, whoever loves his, his life loses it. What's that all about? That's a person who's saying, I'm not giving my life to Jesus. No, this is my life. 
I will live life my way. I'm not surrendering that. I'm not dying to self and letting him death. No, this is my, I love it. You cling to your own life. And the point is, if you do this, you will never experience real life. That's a person who will never experience real salvation because, because they have not come to an end of themselves and real brokenness over their own sin and their need for the Savior. They say, no, no, it's my life. And may I might try Jesus a little bit, kind of add him to my life a little bit, but that's not salvation. He's calling every person to die to self to then experience what real life is all about. And apart from that, you'll never experience real salvation. It begins with death to self. Think about that even further. But it's a person who hates his life. In other words, the idea of a person who's saying, it's not about me anymore, and I could care less about my life because my life is all about God, and I'm repenting. I'm trusting in the Messiah. I'm looking to him as my Lord and Savior. And as you consider this, you think about this. He's, he's teaching us about himself, and then his death brings out real life. And think about this. Even to the believer who's been, who's been truly saved, what does that mean? That person, if you are here tonight and you're in Christ, and tonight as you leave here, there's a bad wreck, and you die and go into eternity, Death for you, if you're in Christ, is swallowed up then in victory. Actually, you go to your real home. It's amazing to think that here's real life. And the same way with a person spiritually, what must happen? He's not saying you must die physically. He's saying you must die to yourself spiritually. This is what he's calling every true believer to, death to self. Apart from this, there is no salvation That's why praying a prayer doesn't save you. But do you know how many people through the years have told me, well, Jeremy, I prayed that. That's nice. But praying a prayer doesn't make you the follower of Jesus. The prayer isn't what saves you. The Messiah is what saves you. It's Jesus. Yes, you do call upon his name to be saved, the scripture says. But what does that mean? That you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Then you'll be saved. It's, it's, it's clear salvation teaching there that you're repenting. You're looking to Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. There's a submission there, a repentance. Could you imagine someone saying, I want Jesus to save me. I don't want to go to hell, but I'm not going to give him my life. <laughs> I've had people say this to me. Jeremy, listen. <clears throat> I don't want to go to hell, but I'm really not ready to give Jesus my life. And I'll smile at him and say, well, then you're not ready. It doesn't work that way. You sort of partially, sort of, kind of repent, sort of, kind of, maybe. He's calling you to full repentance. It's really interesting as, as much as you know how. Now, you might not have understood that fully as a, as a kid when you really turned to Christ. I would say this, but here's the point. When you begin to understand this in a, in a serious way, the real Christian says, yes, God's right, and I will repent. But the phony walks away from Jesus because they're phony. Scripture even says this, they went out from among us. Why? Because they weren't of us. That's why people leave. I don't want anything to do with Christianity, they say. I, I, oh, no, I have been saved, but that makes no sense. 
not true believers. So, so as we look at this, this whole idea of death to self, okay, so here's my question. Have you fully surrendered to Christ? Let's, what does it mean to bear the cross, though, as we're, as we're seeing this? Okay, now go back to Luke, but go to Luke chapter 23. As we look at this, again, this is a study for sure, but Luke 23, it takes us to, you could say, a sacred portion of Scripture. Now, that sounds really silly, doesn't it? Because really, in one sense, all of Scripture is sacred, and so we're not really... But, but the reality is, is when you think about the Bible and you work your way from the Old Testament, you realize, okay, here's God who creates the world, and, and there's no sin in the world. Actually, Adam and Eve have a perfect relationship with God. They have a perfect fellowship. Adam is brilliant. Did you know that, Adam? There's no issues with the gene pool when it comes to Adam. He's like the smartest guy who ever lived. I mean, he's the only guy who ever lived at that point in time, but he really is the smartest guy. He, he, he names every animal. I laugh at that and think, man, I can't even remember my own kids' names. How, how did he do that? You know, name all the animals, and, and yet he's, he's there, and he and, his, he and his wife are in the paradise of God. There's perfect fellowship, and then they're tempted, and they rebel. They break God's law. They actually, it's the great rebellion. It's when they are turning from, their, from the, the Savior, you could say, or from God, and they go their own way. And at that point, the Bible even says this, that death passes upon all men. Why? Because all have sinned. At that point, devastation across this world, and yet mankind, he's going to die. That's why people die, because they have sinned. They were born that way. We're born sinful. We live. We commit sins. Before we ever blame Adam and Eve and say, man, if that were me, wait a second, how many times a day do you sin? Even on a good day, it's, it's multiple times for sure. And yet we look at this and we realize, okay, here they are. And then you start to read the Old Testament. And as you read the Old Testament, here's what you should naturally read. You're reading going, okay, where's the perfect king? He's not here. Where's the perfect earthly ruler? He's, he's not here. Where's the perfect priest, the perfect go-between between us and God? Because there's not one. And then it's like, where's the perfect sacrifice? They kept having to do all these sacrifices. And really what's going on is you read the Old Testament, you should be getting this. Where is the Messiah? That's the question you should be asking. And actually, as you hit the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're introduced to the Messiah. I love this. It's really the culmination. Really, you could say the Bible is history. It's his story. It's a story of redemption. And, and yet here's Jesus at the culmination of this going to die on the cross. So let's look at this in verse 1 of chapter 23. It says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, the king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, and he said this, you have said, that you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were, they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people and teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. Now, wait a second. As Pilate hears this, he thinks of, oh, wait a second. Then that means he's under Herod's jurisdiction. And Herod happened to be in town at the same time. So he sends him to Herod across town. But Herod then sends him back. Actually, as you begin to consider this even more, this is the culmination of the cross. As I, I think about this, don't forget that what happened the night before, he was in a garden praying and he did nothing wrong. He, 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 it was, he wasn't a victim. Did you know that? 
Jesus wasn't like, oh no, what's going on here? I mean, the truth is if he were really, really smart, you know what he should have done? He should have actually, he should have stayed in Jerusalem, which would be overly crowded with some influx of a million to two million people just for the feast time. And so he should have been there. That's where you, that's the best place to hide out. But no, he goes to the garden exactly where Judas would know to go and which is actually the plan of God. And so when Judas comes with all of the people into the garden to go after Jesus, Jesus knows this. He even tells, hey guys, wake up because my betrayer's at hand and he's not running away. He's going right at Judas. And as he makes his way to them, he says, who are you seeking? And what do they say? Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he or I am. And at that moment, they all, boom, fall down on the ground at the sound of his voice. I laugh and always say, who's in charge there? He is. This is the plan of God. And then he stands up again. Remember Peter, he tries to, and all the stuff that flees. And, and then sure enough, all that in the night before. And actually, in the night before with the religious crowd, they asked him questions. And remember, in order to get the full gospel understanding is you really need to read all the gospels. That's why they each highlight kind of their own section. It's almost like a car accident happening. And if you lived on the street corner and you had a bunch of friends or family members come into your house, and, and then all of a sudden you hear, and people had parked on that side of the street, and, and then maybe on the other side of the street over there, and over here, and over here, and over here, the truth is the officer, if no one's seriously hurt, he would also come up and say, okay, tell me about the accident. Who saw it? Can any, do I have any witnesses from over there? What about over there? What did you see? What did you see? And everyone from their angle will tell you the same story but they'll give you the story from their angle. This is the gospel writers. So as you see this, here's Jesus now in front of this religious crowd. He's, the night before, has already been beaten. They, they took a robe, threw it over his head. They said, prophesy, tell us who hit you. They mocked the Messiah. At this point now, he's, he's early in the morning as they put him in a holding cell and then took him early before Pilate because they couldn't perform capital punishment. They were not in charge of capital punishment. They weren't in charge of their own nation, at least not to the point of killing somebody. That was the Romans' job. The Romans had taken over, and they said, no, this is exclusively for us, and so you can't do any of that except only we can do this. Actually, it was a crime deterrent for them as well, too, as they... We're in control there, but now he takes him to Herod. Herod finds no issues with him, actually um, sends, mocks him in a sense. He sends him back in a purple robe before Pilate, verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You have brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they all cried out together, saying this, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. It describes Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. So here's a murderer. Here's a modern-day kind of terrorist, you could even say. And Pilate addressed them once, once more. He's desired to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. And the third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud voices that he should that it should be as they, that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. And so Pilate decided that, that their demand should be granted, and he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection, for murder, and for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus 
over to their will. So Jesus was going to be crucified. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon, a Cyrene, who was coming from the, from the, from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. The cross. What does it mean to bear the cross? If Jesus is calling you to bear a cross, he's calling you to bear the cross, what does that even mean? Actually, it's interesting because right away in their mindset, that would have been a shocker. What are you talking about, Jesus? I mean, think about that for a minute. It's like in their mindset, Jesus had not died on the cross. They had seen this because it was a public display of humiliation as they would see people on crosses outside of the city walls. As you would enter the city or as you would go or as you leave the city, you would see the crosses. You would see people. It was a a major crime deterrent. I mean, everything about this was a gruesome sight. It was so awful. Many times the the mothers would shield their kids' eyes and and pull them inward because of what they would see. So everything about this was like, so wait a second, Jesus, are you Are you calling me to die? And the answer is what? Yes. In order to become a Christian, Jesus isn't asking to live for him. He's asking you to die for him. You don't hear that kind of message from America's pastor. But you do hear the message from Jesus. You don't hear that message from the Pope, but you hear it from Jesus. Now, now, again, when he's saying this, this whole idea of coming and dying, I mean, the truth is, again, the cross in our world is a symbol that we all know and we love, don't we? I mean, it's like we have pictures of crosses in different places, you know? It's like some of you might have a necklace charm that's a cross, or, or maybe you've got earrings, you know, that are crosses, you know, or, or you've got, you got a cross on a T-shirt, or you got it maybe on your bumper sticker or something. Like that. You, the cross is such a normal symbol in our life, and, we, and I get that. Or maybe, you know, it's like a, a tattoo of a cross, you know? like pastors, you know, have you ever seen that one? That's pretty crazy. And, um, but as I think about this, I mean, the cross is so kind of normal in our world, but wait a second, is it? Because in that world, it would almost be like in our world, we say, hey, what is that weird necklace charm thing that is around your neck? It looks, it looks odd. And they say, oh, that's an electric chair, you know, capital punishment. Oh, uh, have a nice day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Or what are those charms on your ear? Like, what is that dangling from your ear? Oh, that's a noose. You know where people hang themselves. What? Like a symbol of death? What does that even make? That doesn't make any sense. This is the whole point is at this point that for them to hear the message, to bear the cross is such a shocker. Like, what are you saying, Jesus? And yet he is calling people to death. He's calling people to death to self. As you look even further at this passage, it's interesting because because there's a lot of things that are within Luke that you're missing. He's highlighting certain things, but if you, if you put the other gospel writers' accounts together, you realize his conversation with even Pilate was, was much longer than this. Remember, even Pilate's wife said, don't have anything to do with this guy. I've had bad dreams about this whole thing. I mean, everything about this was, 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 was within the system there, and they'd already beaten Jesus, and Pilate has this good idea. Oh, I know what I'll do. I will actually take the worst criminal, because at that time it was Passover, and during Passover they would release a prisoner, so let's get the worst one. Go get Barabbas. And Barabbas comes out there. They stand Barabbas and Jesus beside each other. And he, this is a perfect plan, he's thinking. So who should I let go free? And they begin to yell out, give us Barabbas. 
Well, then, then what do I do with Jesus? Crucify him. Put him to death. The religious crowd had so riled up the people, which is so interesting because earlier that week, remember, as he entered the city of Jerusalem, he enters and they're saying, Hosanna, and everything about this is blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean, everything about this is Messiah, and they turn on him that quickly? What's going on here? It shows you how fickle mankind is and how sinful mankind is. Here's the Messiah, the one who could rescue them, but yet the very plan of God, as this is going on, they release Barabbas, but sure enough, here's Jesus who they, who know is innocent, even Pilate in another one of the gospel accounts, he washes his hands in front of everybody in a wash basin saying, I believe he's innocent, but I'm sentencing him to die, and his blood is not upon me, it's upon you, and they said, yes, and even our own kids too, we, we take it on ourselves, that's what they're saying, and yet Pilate sentences him to die. At this point, what happened is before he goes and starts stumbling with the cross, they would play a game called the Game of the Kings. Basically, they would take the person they were going to crucify and they would scourge the person. Remember how this would work is they would take the person, they would strip him of all of their clothes, they would tie their arms up to a whipping post above the head to stretch out the body. They would take a soldier, would have a wooden-handled whip with leather lashes tied real tightly to that whip and that handle there, and then the leather lashes were bone and metal, sharp objects. They would take that, called, often called a cat of nine tails or a scourge or a flagellum. They would take this, and they would whip it across the body. As they would whip it across the body, sure enough, those leather thongs or straps would wrap around the body. As they would hit the skin, the, the sharp objects would actually stick into the the skin, embed into the skin. The other objects that maybe were more blunt would bruise the skin just by one hit, but as they would stick into the skin, then they would pull back sharp and hard. As they pulled it back, sure enough, that one hit would rip open the flesh, and there would be scars and blood flowing from one hit. They would work their way from the shoulders to the knees as they would do this, oftentimes being exhausted, passing it to another one, and they would work the body. The whole point was this. Take them to the very edge of death. Don't let them die. Make them suffer. Actually, historically, many had even died at times from a scourging. They wanted Jesus to get to the very edge of death. You say, well, come on, Jeremy, remember, remember the Old Testament, you know, 40, save one, that's all they would have done, huh? That's nice if, if, if they were Jewish people doing this to a Jewish person, but it's not. These, these are not Jewish people. They could care less about any Jewish custom. They were filleting the person. The whole point is when they would have cut the rope, Jesus would have fallen into his own pool of blood, actually his, his, literally from his shoulders to his knees, bodily organs exposed, bones exposed. I mean, they're, they're ripping the, 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 really the flesh off of the person. Uh, the truth is, even as it comes to that point, they, they pay, take a crown of thorns and they, they make it very carefully that it doesn't prick them and they place it on his head. Then they take a, a, a reed. It's really a small stick. It's the king's scepter. And you know, they take that and they pound it on his head, forcing it into his brows. He's being hit even more. They've already spit in his face. They've already buffeted him. Why? What did he do wrong? And the point is he did no wrong. The scripture says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement literally that would bring us peace would be upon him and with his stripes were healed. What's going on? Jesus is the Messiah. That was written 700 years before Messiah ever came. 
just showing you very clearly that here he is as Messiah, King, and Lord. He is the one fulfilling all the prophecies for this. And yet, as you consider this even further, they, they begin to lead him out with the cross beam probably only. I say that because the cross beam weighed about 110 pounds. And he stumbles with this in his weakened condition, and yet it's all from the crowd. All of a sudden, they grab a guy out, which is a whole other message. But they grab him out of the crowd, and sure enough, he, he holds and carries the cross and bears the cross after Jesus. Remember this. They take him even further. Watch this. As we've looked at this already in chapter 23, we realize in verse 26, as they held the cross there, he's on this man, Simon of Cyrene. And then it says this, he, to carry it behind Jesus, verse 27, and they followed him at a great, and, and they followed him and a great multitude of the people and of the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But, but turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs which never bore and the breasts which never nursed. And they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? What is that all about? Actually, he's talking about future. He's talking about what would happen even within Jerusalem and then in the end times as well. The truth is there would be massive uprising. You think of the abomination of desolation. When that would occur at that moment, what does the Bible say? Flee, run, run for your life. As you consider that, the truth is, is those people who would run for their own lives, it's like he, he, they're hoping that, that death would pass on them, but it, but it flees from them. And he's saying this, if they're willing to do this to the Messiah who's right in front of them now, what do you think will he, that they will do to his followers when I'm gone? Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Jesus then goes to the, to the cross. It's interesting as he's there in verse 32, it says two others were, who were criminals in verse 32 were, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place which is called the skull or Golgotha, um, Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on, the right, on his right and the other on his left. And here's Jesus in the middle. And, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots and divide his garments. It's like, whoa, that's crazy. Normally, the guy on the cross was actually, he was actually cursing the one who was crucifying him. But no, not this, not, not here. He's, he's forgiving them. And then they cast lots, they divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. The rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the, the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him. And coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. That was his crime in verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. It seems as though at this point everybody's mocking him. Criminals, the soldiers, the religious crowd. It's the heat of the day. The sun is out bright. It's interesting, but the other rebuked him saying, Do you not Fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation. This was a Jewish person. He understood, cursed is anybody who hangs on a tree. You're over here 
cursing him. And the truth is, we are cursed. He knows this. Now, the truth is this. This is not random. This, this isn't what amazes me because I think sometimes people go, well, the criminal on the cross, you know, like it just maybe randomly you're on a cross and you're going to die. And so you go, hey, hey, you, will you save me? Is that how it all worked? I mean, the truth is no. He would have heard Jesus preach in the past. He would have known of the Messiah and who he is. For him to say what he said is not random at all. This is of God. He actually looks to Jesus and actually cries out to him. As you look at this closely, verse 41, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He's claiming the innocency of Christ, and it's a criminal saying, I deserve to die for my sin. Can I tell you that's not normal? Most criminals say, it wasn't my fault. Well, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, bad friends. But not this one. This one is humbly repenting. He's, he's come to grips with his own sin. Can I tell you this? If you're here today and you've never been saved, you will never get saved until you humble yourself in real repentance where you begin to see your sin the way God sees it. And you begin to feel the conviction and the weight of sin. As I think about this, I think about the song Rock of Ages. Remember that old song? And yet what happens in that song, the song says that the writer says, nothing in my hands I can bring to, to the Lord, only to the cross I can cling. He says, I'm, I'm naked, I'm exposed, I come to him for dress. And then actually at one point in the song, here's what he says. He comes to the point where he's so destitute, he can't save himself. And he says, in all my tears, no respite, no. I, in all the tears I have, even with this, this fervency and this, this urgency, he's got tears, but he couldn't find peace. Because religion doesn't bring you peace. And then the writer says, wash me, Savior, or I die. What is going on there? That's called repentance. He's turning from his sin to the Savior. It's saying, God, if you don't save me, I won't make it. You're the only way. And he's looking to Jesus. Here's what he says, verse 42. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What is that? I mean, if Jesus has a kingdom... What does that make Jesus? A king. <laughs> and if he's going to go into his kingdom and yet they're going to die that day, is this an earthly kingdom or a heavenly kingdom? And the answer is what? It's heavenly. He's saying, King Jesus, will you even please consider me when you go into this kingdom? That shows great humility and brokenness. He's not even saying, save me now. He's saying, would you even please consider me, please? And yet here's the point that God saves the humble. He resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Have you ever been truly saved? Has there been a time where you've really come to grips with your own sin? You know you needed the Messiah to save you. You actually repented. You trusted in Christ and Him alone. This is what the, this guy did. And actually, as you look at this in verse 43, there was no good works that saved him. And he said unto him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Wait, that's called eternal security. That's actually right there from Jesus, His own, his own voice. You're going to be with me in heaven. And it's about the sixth hour, it says. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from noon to three, boom, lights go out. You can't see anything. And, and then what are you going to do? You can't walk around in Jerusalem. I mean, that old place is, is on a mountain. I mean, the nature is everything is going up to Jerusalem from whichever direction you want to go. It's like, it's like serious. You don't just walk around now when you can't see it. So what do people do? They just 
sit down for three hours, darkness. That's a, that's a time normally in the, in the afternoon when they're slaying the lambs for Passover. Everything about this was stopped everything. Could you imagine what's going on here? And the Jewish person knew this, darkness meant judgment. And God was pouring out His wrath, and yet it should have landed on all of mankind, all of us. We should have all been destroyed because we've sinned against a holy God, and in God's righteous anger, it should have destroyed every last one of us because when you sin against a holy God, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a punishment, an eternal God, there's an eternal punishment. And so the truth is all of us should deserve this, but it's almost like it funnels to Christ and lands on Christ. Christ is bearing the sin of, of mankind. That's radical. As you consider that even further, though, it's amazing because from, from noon to three, it's just darkness. And then it says, and while the sun's light failed in verse 45 and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, that's so thick no, no human would rip it or could. It's, and yet from the top to the bottom, it's torn, the Scripture teaches us. And Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last now when, the, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this, was an, this man was innocent. When you consider all of this, it's, what's going on here? What does it mean to bear the cross? You ready to take some really fast notes? Here's what it is, really quick. Ready? Number one, what does it mean to bear the cross? Cross-bearing is a sign of total submission to a higher authority. When you bear the cross, this means total submission. You don't sort of kind of sort of bear the cross. Even in that day, when they're bearing a cross, they are submitting to the higher authority of the Roman government in that day. And there's nothing else they could do but submit to that and carry their own cross. But yet when you consider, here's Jesus calling you and me to bear the cross, the whole point is we're submitting to the higher authority. Any person that says, no, I'm not going to bear the cross, well, then I'm so sorry you won't experience eternal life. That's where it begins, but it never stops there either, though. Think about this as you bear the cross, but yet it's a sign of total submission to a higher authority. Let me ask you a question. Whose life is your life? Is it really yours or is it God's? Because if it's yours, you're an idolater. You're the idol. And God will have no idols. He's calling you to forsake your idols, including yourself. Total submission to a higher authority. Number two, cross-bearing is a public display of humiliation. If they did this to Jesus, what do you expect? I mean, do you really expect when you become a Christian that everybody at your workplace is going to pat you on the back and go, man, that's awesome. We're so happy for you. You became, oh, you got saved. That's amazing. Well, maybe if you work in a church, maybe, you know. But apart from that, people, you tell them about, you know, you getting saved and you tell them how great the weekend was because you were born again and they go, what, what are you talking about? You mean you, you went to church? No, I got saved. Jesus saved me. What, you know, you should come to my church. You need to get saved too, you know. And they go, ah, I can't. I'm, I'm really busy. I'm like washing my socks or something. I mean, they'll, they'll th come up with some other way. That's not something. And actually within our culture, it's interesting because we're feeling a little bit more persecution, a little bit more. But there are some cultures 
you come to Christ, your whole family will forsake you. Actually, they may kill you. This is how serious it is, and yet what do we expect? And people make fun of us because we're Christians? Well, what do we expect? Do do, do you really want the popularity of the world? Is that what you want, to die and go to hell and the popularity of the world and everyone pat you on the back? Or are you going to forsake it all for Jesus? And the reality is it's a public display of humiliation. That was the whole point. Make it a public display. Via Dolorosa, where he's burying the cross and he, and he stumbles with us. That road, I've been there. It's still busy to this day. It's a, it's a busy place. And the whole point was it's a public display. Everything about this, again, being humiliated. You're hanging on a cross naked. I mean, the nature of this, too, is, is as they would walk by. Remember even what Isaiah tells us about? It says in Isaiah 52 that Jesus' body, his visage was so marred he didn't look human. That literally people walk walking by would have seen him on a cross in a very public place. And, and again, mothers would have shielded their eyes and maybe even saying this, dear God, what is that? I mean, the truth is I can't paint it bad enough. He didn't look like a person anymore as he's hanging there. And actually people on a cross would often, have, there would be wild beasts that would come up and begin to, begin to chew their feet while they're still alive. There would be birds that would land and begin to pluck out their eyes and begin to rip flesh off of them and they're still alive. They would dangle there and hang there, you could say, for days. That's why it was kind if you break the legs because they wouldn't be able to breathe the same way and they would eventually die of suffocation. They would die a quick death and so it was kind for them to break the legs. But as they come to Jesus, they didn't break his legs because he's already dead. They took a spear, thrust it up underneath his ribcage into the heart, pulled it out. Sure enough, blood and water pour out. Jesus is unresponsive. They know he's dead. They're experts at this. That's why the resurrection is so amazing. But you consider this, and the whole point is it is a public display of humiliation. If you bear the cross, this is what you're getting into. People will mock you. You go to church? You're a Christian? <laughs> Public display of humiliation. What do you expect? What do they do to Jesus? That's why it shouldn't shock us. It shouldn't, we shouldn't be going, I can't believe this. And This is not right. I'm being persecuted. That, that's what, again, we don't even really quite understand this in our culture, but I would say number three. Here we go. Ready? Cross-bearing is a willingness to die to self and to follow Christ completely. It's, it's full surrender. That's what it means to bear the cross, to, to die to self and follow Christ completely. Now, in order to conclude this, we have to see this. It's found in Luke chapter 9. Look, for me, look with me at Luke chapter 9 and look at verse 22. Three. It's, a, it's the parallel message, you could say. It's, it's here. It's, verse 23 says this, and he said to them all, so here's Jesus speaking to the people there, and he says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, and what does the next word say? Nope, look at the scripture. Think about this. Look at it closely. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. What's the next word? Daily. And follow me. He even says this, for whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now consider this for a minute. You take up the cross daily. 
Do you know one thing I learned a long time ago is this. It's interesting. It's when God got a hold of my life. I was 17. I was, it was a major transformation in my own heart, my own life. I began to, to be a Christ follower. I mean, honestly, if I wasn't saved when I was five, I know I got saved when I was 17. It's like, Christ, you can rule and reign in my life. I, it's like at that point, I'm walking with Jesus. I'm starting to read my Bible daily, just kind of, it's like as I'm walking with the Lord. But, but one thing, I, and, I, and I thought, man, I'm dedicated. But wait a second. Do you realize that dedication is not a one-time thing? Like, like you could have been fully surrendered last summer, but it doesn't mean you are right now. You could have been surrendered last night, but it doesn't mean you are today. You could have been this morning, but it doesn't mean you are now. So, so what is this about? This is a daily surrender to the Lord in our life. We bear the cross daily. We die, you could say, daily. There's an element of this where you're bearing the cross on a consistent basis daily before the Lord because this is what he calls you to do. If anyone's going to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If you cling to your life, you lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life for his sake... Actually, that's when you, when you find it. Isn't it interesting? You could even say this. Cross-bearing leads to real and true life. Apart from bearing the cross, you'll never experience what life is all about. This is, that's just so amazing. And actually, even as a believer, isn't it amazing how sometimes we as believers, we are trying to live out the Christian life in our own strength. It's not about us living it out. It's about us surrendering and letting Christ live it out through us. Yes, we do work it out, the salvation, but we do this because God's working in us. There's this element of just full surrender. As I think about this tonight, here's my question to you. As we've looked at the cross and we've kind of taken a glimpse of this, a genuine disciple of Jesus is a person who surrenders to Christ fully. So here's my question to you. Are you fully surrendered? At this moment in your life, are you really fully surrendered? What are you holding back if you are? Because what, that counselor that talked to me the one night when I really surrendered to the Lord, here's what interesting, here's what he said to me. He said, um, he said, Jeremy, that's great. You want to surrender your life? I said, yes, that's what I want to do tonight. I told him. I, I responded. I'm in tears. It's like tears of joy and submission and surrender, but I'm giving my life to Christ. I'm surrendering. And he says, that's great, Jeremy. And so here's what he asked me, and I'm so thankful he did this because he was, he was wise as a counselor. He said, that's great that you're surrendering your life, but if you're surrendering your life, what about your life right now is not surrendered? You know, when he was asking me that, you know what he was helping me see? He was helping me see my idols. Because anything that you're holding back is an idol. And at that point, I began to realize, wait a second, this is amazing. I, I need to surrender everything. He's not saying partial surrender. No, he's Lord of all. You surrender it all. And anything short of that is idolatry. That's why the scripture teaches us in Luke 14, Come to me, he's saying, but in, in the verse, next verse, in verse 27, after 26, you know what he's saying? Come after me, because the true believer who follows Christ not only comes to Jesus, but he will continually come after Jesus. That's normal for true believers. For a person to supposedly come to Jesus and then flee and then to say, I'm an atheist, it makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> that means they never got it in the first place. 
So Jesus is calling you and me to full surrender. So the question is, tonight, can you honestly say you're fully surrendered as much as you know to Christ? If not, may God help you do this to experience real life and real joy of what it means to be a Christ follower. Let's pray tonight.